It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Actually, it's a very interesting discussion. We could, could go on and on and on with that. I mean, if you want to have me on your show weekly, I'll, I'll be happy to be your Canadian contributor. <laughs> the we'll Infrastructure do a, yeah. Bank podcast. <laughs> the Infracast. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It's Thursday, December 8th. I'm Kate Smith, an editor for Bloomberg News in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg in Washington, D.C. Hey, Scott, how are you? All right. How's it going, Kate? Well, I have to say I am kind of regret. I'm not regretting. I'm dreading my ride home. The subway that I take to get home is like, you remember the pictures that they showed like post Sandy of all the people shoulder to shoulder in the subway? Well, it's like that, but somehow that's just like my day-to-day life every day in New York. But I, I've heard that it's even worse in D.C. Well, you should be happy that you get a ride home at all because in D.C. there are days when the trains aren't even running or they're shutting down large sections of track. I mean, we don't really have the problem with overcrowding anymore because ridership has is, is fallen significantly. It, but That's incredible. <laughs> I didn't realize that. So I would like to have your problem. I I'd think, rather have that than the trains hmm, not running. These sound like the lesser of two evils, though. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what you and I experienced, though, is obviously pretty reminiscent of what a lot of people experience in the U.S., and that's kind of just dealing with the failing infrastructure problem that you have here in America. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the American Society of Civil Engineers, but they gave the U.S. a D-plus um, when ranking our country's infrastructure, and that's like, you know, in an academic scale. So you can't get that much worse. You could get an F. You could get an F. So we don't have an F. We have a D plus. Does that even count as passing, though? It I don't think does, it counts in as some passing. places it does, and some it doesn't. <laughs> okay, so maybe passing, depending where we are. And they also estimated to bring us to like a current. So I guess like you know an A, perhaps. It would take three point six trillion dollars by twenty twenty. You talk about those numbers, and it's probably why uh, Donald Trump's promise to repair. Uh, the infrastructure in the U.S. resonated with voters. You know, it's impossible to know exactly what he's going to do to fulfill that promise because so you know a few different proposals have been bandied about. Uh, one thing that his nominee for Treasury Secretary mentioned was doing an infrastructure bank. Uh, it's actually an idea that the campaign criticized, so we don't really know what what's going to happen. But uh, it, the, an infrastructure bank is something that our neighbors to the north uh, have announced that they wanted to implement, and that that came uh, just recently in what they call the fall economic statement. 
So to tell us a little bit more about what we have in Canada, we have the Canadian Parliamentary Secretary to the Federal Minister of Finance, Francois-Philippe Champagne. He's joining us over the phone. Francois-Philippe is a liberal politician and he represents the riding of... Scott, please try not to laugh at me. Saint Maurice Champlain. Saint Maurice. Oh, you were very close to it. <laughs> I was Your so close. Superb, I should. Say. Oh, you are far too kind. You truly are a politician. <laughs> so, Francois Philippe, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I was listening to you, and uh, yes, indeed. I mean, that's the, the thing you're talking about. You know, public infrastructure and public transit, in particular. It's a challenge you find in a number of capital around the world, and indeed, Canada has tried to. Uh, as you were saying in the fall economic statement, uh, we, we said to Canadians how we're going to do it. And um, you may have seen we're going to invest $186 billion uh, in infrastructure. So that's an historic amount uh, because we realized that uh, Canadians have asked us to, to um, obviously help them and their families and grow the economy. So as part of our inclusive growth model, uh, we did a number of things for Canadians, reducing taxes and investing in families. But on the growth side, we decided to invest, as you could see, massively in infrastructure, not only in public transit, but also in green infrastructure, in trade corridors, in uh, rural infrastructure. And I'm quite happy to be talking to you about that because I think this is going to be transformational for Canada. Well, I'm happy that you're here to tell us about it. So the United States, obviously, and I'm sure you've heard Francois-Philippe, um, we're like notoriously outdated for our infrastructure. We had nearly 10 years ago, I think it was the Mississippi uh, River Bridge collapse in Minneapolis. That killed 13 people and injured 134. Um, here in the Northeast, you have the, the Amtrak train that a lot of people complain about, especially those who travel from D.C. to New York. Um, Scott, I'm sure you've had to deal with that before. Oh, yeah. um, the campaign trail, the Guardia Airport comes up as the as the third world country esque airport that we have here in New York. But you know, we we know all about how bad the U.S. is. But Francois Philippe, maybe you can give us kind of an account of what it's like in Canada. What what's the reputation for infrastructure where you are? Well, clearly, you know what we're finding in, in some of our uh, cities, and you would find the same thing in the United States. We realize that uh, the fact that people cannot transit easily in city has a social cost and an economic cost. So that's why. As part of the 186 billion Canadian, we said we'd be investing over 12 years. Uh, we put aside 25.3 billion uh, for public transit because we realize there's a cost. You know, we want people to be able to transit uh, in the city faster. Uh, that gives them more time with their family, more time to start a business, and so there's a social cost, economic cost, and we realize that. And and certainly we wanted to hack because we we heard that from Canadian. Then there was the green infrastructure piece. We're putting more than 22 billion in that. This is really about clean water, clean air, because uh, not just in Canada, but I think you'd find throughout North America, there's probably been an underinvestment uh, in terms of these type of infrastructure, and we needed to continue to invest and, and make sure that uh, uh, people uh, in Canada in particular want to see these green infrastructure being built. And then you have the social infrastructure, which is really about social housing. Um, you may have heard we're going to put around $22 billion in that, because this is really something throughout uh, cities, but also rural communities. Uh, social housing is becoming an issue. If you want people to be fully engaged in the economy, be fully engaged in society, they have to be able to properly house themselves. And then the last piece then is really about the trade corridor. And that probably would be interesting for the U.S. So we said we'd put aside like $10 billion to make sure that our goods can transit faster to our ports, our airports, our bridges. Uh, mainly to the United States in order to facilitate commerce, because 
as uh, you know, we don't need to remind people, but you know, we have about two billion of trade uh, going on every day between Canada and the United States. You have about two thirds of the states in the United States who have Canada as their major export partner. So we want to facilitate commerce. We want to keep um, building on that extremely good relationship we have um, and making sure our trade corridors are very efficient. And the last piece I'll say to, to the people listening to us is we put aside $2 billion for our rural and northern communities, understanding, probably just like in the U.S., that they have very particular need uh, to make sure that we cover um, these people as well with a very specific program of investment. Now, now let's let's talk about what Kate was saying about you know the U.S. infrastructure getting a D plus from the Society of Civil Engineers. Uh, when, when you look at this, the condition of Canada's airports, roads, bridges, water infrastructure, things like that, what kind of rating would you give it on a scale of one to ten? When you would say like ten is in excellent condition and one is uh, you know uh, you're, you're falling apart like LaGuardia. <laughs> Well, I would say, uh, you know, just like in the U.S., if you look across the nation, I think that the answer could be different depending on if you go, if you look north, if you look east, west, or in the middle of the country. But suffice to say that what we've seen in Canada, and it may be true in other OECD countries, particularly over the last 10 years, there's been an underinvestment, not only in new build, but also in maintenance. So obviously, when we entered government um, uh, with the Prime Minister Trudeau, we found ourselves uh, in a situation where we need to invest massively uh, in our infrastructure. This is also good for the economy because we said to Canadians that we want to have inclusive growth, we want to grow the economy, and clearly infrastructure investments is the right way to do because that touches about everyone um, in our country. When you look at these different infrastructure you mentioned, everyone's going to benefit. And, you know, I would say confident nations today invest in their people and in their economy. And one of the things that we've announced in the fall economic statement was one thing we wanted to create and we're going to set up is an infrastructure bank. Uh, the reason for that is, is for us to be able to do more and faster. This is going to be one more tool in our toolbox because we understand that um, we want to attract global investment, global capital. Um, I was just at the APEC Finance Minister Summit in Lima and Peru recently, and when I was talking about the Canadian way in terms of infrastructure investment, you see there's a number of nation and global investments that would like to invest in countries like Canada where you have stability, predictability, rule of law, very stable banking system. And we think that the infrastructure bank is going to be uh, allowing us to get the leverage we want in order to attract this type of global investment to help us build faster and, and more um, with the time scale that we've given Canadians to deliver. So, Francois-Philippe, we have a we have an ad we're going to break for, sure. um, but when we come back, I want to hear exactly how an infrastructure bank works for our, those listeners who aren't policy wonks like us. Definitely. Be a pleasure. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome back. Okay, so Francois Philippe, let's take a step back here. 
how exactly, so for our listeners, I know how an infrastructure bank works because it's actually this tool that they use in the world of municipal bonds here in the U.S. But can you help our listeners who aren't perhaps familiar with kind of the basics of how an infrastructure bank works? Yeah, I mean, let me tell you why we did that in Canada. I mean, if you look at traditional funding model, if you have a project of $500 million, in Canada, you would normally have funding, which would be one-third federal, one-third provincial, and one-third municipal. Now, with the infrastructure bank, we think we can get the leverage to four to five. So with the same $500 million project, we think we can raise private capital to the extent of about $400 million. And then the federal government would put one-third, the municipal would put one-third, and provincial would put one-third. So what I was saying is that it allows us to do more and faster. So why are we creating that? First is to obviously um, attract global investment to help us to do more and faster. And the reason why you want to have a structure, and like I said, other nations, you mentioned it, have that. I, I'm, I, I know of the Australian model, for example. Uh, but for us, it's really about making sure that we pool the expertise we would have in this country uh, to make sure that uh, we have all the experts in one place. Um, second thing is that we can have projects that could be financed uh, so that you need to package these projects into something that you can attract uh, global investments. And the third thing is that you want to have a pipeline of projects. So when you have global investors who are looking to invest, for example, in Canada infrastructure, typically these people would want to see what kind of projects you have, what kind of pipeline of projects you have. Are they in, in green infrastructure? Are they in public transit? Are they in wastewater and water? So by having one structure, uh, you actually pool the expertise. You make sure that you have bankable projects. You make sure that you have a pipeline of projects. So when you want to go to the global markets, uh, you have indeed a, a, a place where global investor can, can, can call and, and see what type of investment, if they want to invest in infrastructure in Canada, where they can go. And I think this is going to be very successful. I mean, again, I was at the APEC Finance Minister Summit in Peru just recently, and I was mentioning a number of projects. And, um, you know, to give you an example, when I mentioned some of the projects, some of the delegation came to see me after and said, that's the type of projects we would really want to invest. So what are the no. projects? And my, my curiosity is peaked. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I gave the example in Montreal, uh, uh, which is a great city. In Montreal, we're building what we call a regional electric train. And this is about a four to five billion dollar projects in Canada. This is very great because we're we're building another public transit, a very green one. And when I mentioned that, obviously that sparked a lot of interest because you have a number of delegations who have sovereign funds or others. We say that's exactly the type of projects we want to invest because you have, you know, a, you know, that matches their liabilities. Those are projects that you can finance over 30 years. So very interesting uh, for investors to look at. And now, uh, can I interrupt sure. for a second? Now, let me let me turn to a couple criticisms that uh, I've heard of infrastructure banks and private financing. Uh, one is that what Trump uh, and his campaign said uh, throughout the year, which uh, which is that an infrastructure bank creates a whole new bureaucracy, creates, you know, kind of centralizes decision making. That's one criticism. And then kind of from the other side of the political aisle, you hear the criticism that, you know, in order to make private financing work, you need you need a pretty significant flow of taxes or user fees, and that, you know that burden either tends to fall on the average folk using the infrastructure, or you know the project doesn't get financed at all. How do you respond to those two issues? 
Well, the first one, I think by pooling the resources and the projects in one agency, I think you get economy of scale. And, and actually, for me, I think it's a better way to market these projects if you want to attract global investments so that people know who to call, who to talk to if they're interested in investing in transformational projects. I mean, we're looking about transformational infrastructure projects in our nation. So I think there's, there's a lot of benefits of having one place where people can actually look for and also for this agency to prepare these projects, select these projects in the best way to make sure that we're going to attract these global investments. The other thing with respect to the user fees, I mean, if you look at regional light trains, the one that I was just talking about, I mean, people already pay for using these services. So I don't think that you can necessarily, like you said, equate that it'd be higher users' fees. I think we know that global capital is looking at investments like these ones with very long return. And I think that people would be, um, what I said to Canadians many times, and that would apply to the U.S., why not put our pension money working for Canadians? So Canadian pension money working for Canadians. So when people enter the train in the morning, they know that they're, uh, for example, in this case, their pension has been helping them to build in that. And when they pay the user fee, they're actually investing in their own pension. So there's something, you know, when we went to the public with that, we really made the case that this was something good for people and that would benefit uh, everyone, not just the users, but this is a good way to reinvest. I mean, we know that there's um, there's a fair amount of capital uh, in, in pension funds around the world, insurance companies, that are looking for these type of projects, which uh, are going to improve our cities, are going to improve our quality of life, are going to bring greener infrastructure. And honestly, when you say to Canadians, why don't we put your pension and money working for you now? That's something that people relate to and they accept uh, willingly to say, that seems to be the smart thing to do today. So this has been all very positive, but I, I have to imagine this is politics. There's got to have been some negative feedback. So what's been some of the criticisms of potentially implementing an infrastructure bank in Canada? Well, the main criticism we got was, and, and I would say this, is there, there not another agency already existing that could be doing that? And, uh, you know, we had some agency looking at, at PPP projects, but I think that uh, we thought that having a different agency to really with a mandate to organize these projects and market them is the best way to do. I think there's been very few disagreement with respect to the value and the merit of making sure that um, uh, we can structure these projects to attract global investment. I think people understand the leverage. Uh, people understand that we need to do more and faster. Uh, some people, like you mentioned, uh, question the user fees. And what we've been very transparent about is that this is not for all types of projects. Like I said, you know, we're putting $186 billion in infrastructure over, over 12 years, and we're taking only $15 billion out of this 186 in the infrastructure bank. And we think we can raise another $20 billion on the market for the infrastructure bank. So what we're saying to people is that clearly there's some type of investment. Think about social infrastructure. I don't necessarily think that we're going to find projects that would fit the bill to be financed to the infrastructure bank. But by getting the leverage with the infrastructure bank for those projects that could attract global capital, that gives us more money to be able to invest in social infrastructure. And when you explain to people and you take the time to say, this is about doing more and faster and actually not using public funds that would otherwise be needed to build the type of infrastructure where we need uh, we can get private capital, but using these funds to, for example, invest in social housing, people really understand that this really makes sense. 
So how long until this uh, infrastructure bank is up and running and until it finances its first projects? Well, uh, as you said, we, we announced that in the fall economic statement we have in Canada. This is, you know, uh, six months after our, our federal budget. So, uh, you know, we're about building the blueprints of that. We want to obviously uh, get the bank uh, started as fast as possible. I think uh, based on our discussions with a number of international partners, there's a lot of interest uh, in investing in Canada for the reasons we know, because people want to invest in North America. People have confidence in our system. People will see that the, these green projects are going to attract uh, significant investment. So we're trying to set up with, um, you know, a small team to start as soon as possible to make sure that we can start market these projects around the world and, and get um, these projects built as soon as possible. So let me ask you one final question. Um, like I had mentioned before, the U.S. does use the infrastructure bank model on a smaller scale. Um, the idea being, you know, for our listeners who don't know about this, certain states that have uh, small municipalities, um, they'll use an, a state-level infrastructure bank model. And the way it works is that the state will borrow money on capital markets using the state's interest rate, um, which is you know much lower, of course, than the towns. And then the towns will go to the state, you know, saying, you know, the infrastructure products that they want to get done, and the state will effectively lend the money to the individual towns. The whole purpose being that small towns aren't edged out of the capital markets, you know, by either just no investor being interested or having to pay, you know, prohibitively high interest rates. And a long way of asking you, um, is there a reason why you didn't look at look at maybe perhaps doing this on a province by province basis, as opposed to federal? Well, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned states because I'm a bit familiar with the Alaskan model. I think in Alaska there's something similar to that, which I'm familiar because I think I've met with people who uh, were saying the great things you've been able to achieve in Alaska with respect to that in terms of infrastructure development. So clearly, like you said, there's different models. Um, I'm more familiar with the Alaska uh, example. But I think for us, uh, because we're looking at transformational national type of projects, we thought that this that the best way to, to get the best leverage was really to have that at the federal level. Um, we want to make sure that uh, we attract some of the best uh, talent uh, in this agency. We want to make sure that we structure these projects to be uh, bankable. And I think to do that on a national basis, obviously, it could be different in the United States because obviously our economy are of different size. But we thought in Canada that the right thing to do was really to do that on a national basis so that um, I think we can better market as a country uh, some of these projects, whether it's the rail projects I mentioned in Montreal or whether you would have a port expansion or you would have an airport expansion. I think from our perspective, um, it's better to market that at the national level. And like I said, there's been a great level of interest uh, because people have seen, probably just like you mentioned in a number of United States, but also I know in Australia and other places that once they have created that, this has been uh, very beneficial in attracting the type of global investment that we want to attract to make sure that we can build these projects. Um, and I think this is, the smart thing to do, you know, today you have all this capital in, in uh, pension funds and insurance companies which are looking for these types of projects. I mean, our pension funds and our insurance company are investing abroad. So it just seems to make sense for us to create the structure that would make it possible for them to invest in our own country. Well, François-Philippe, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week's Benchmark. Thank you so much for making yourself available. Well, it's a great pleasure. And, and uh, 
look forward uh, to talk to you and very happy to uh, to tell you how this is unfolding and I'm sure this is going to be a model not only for Canada but something that could be replicated in a number of places. Absolutely. Well, Benchmark will be back next week and until then you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so that more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to and follow us on Twitter at, at Scott Landman and at by Kate Smith. And of course, a big shout out to our folks behind the windows, Sarah Patterson and Alec McCabe. <laughs> so, Scott, what do you think? Do you think we have an infrastructure bank around the corner for the U.S.? Uh, I'm still holding my breath. Uh, I'll believe it when I see it. Okay. There you go. Canada, Canada will have theirs first. I'm yeah, sure. probably. <laughs> see you next week. Brought to you by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Seeing what others have seen, but uncovering what others may not. Global research that helps you harness disruption. Voted top global research firm five years running. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.